Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're excited to speak with the one and only Amanita Dreamer. In her former life, Amanita Dreamer was a scientist, an educator, and a homesteading mother. Today, AD shares important information on that most famous of mushrooms, the Amanita muscaria. After searching for years for a natural alternative for help with her chronic pain and anxiety, she found this most iconic mushroom and dove into the world of fungi. And now she dedicates herself to help others learn what she knows about Amanita muscaria, a mushroom that, according to her, could save the humans on the planet. AD started a YouTube channel and founded a forum solely dedicated to the Amanita muscaria for those who needed a safe space to get accurate information. But after severe and harsh censorship on social media platforms that seem all too quick to declare any mushroom deadly, dangerous, and illegal, she is moving all of her content to a website, AmanitaDreamer.net. So drawing from what little research there is, AD works to sift through, interpret, share, challenge, and ask tough questions. She is controversial at times, but scathingly honest about her path, her use of entheogenic medicines, and hopes that others will open up to the simplicity, spirit, and beauty that is the Amanita muscaria. Bringing together our history of lore and indigenous use with modern data, research, and science, she hopes that this is the beginning of a future where we will know much more about this versatile, functional, and magical entheogenic medicine and teacher. AD, Miss Amanita Dreamer, thank you so much for coming on the Mushroom Hour podcast. This is exciting. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, it's exciting for me. I've been a fan of your work because I think you're one of the people that is starting to demystify the Amanita for us, and not just in like, writing a book about it and going through folklore, but in actual preparation and use of the mushroom itself. I think a lot of us are kind of realizing there's taboo around the Amanita, but we still don't know anything about eating it or eating it for whether it be just culinary or psychoactive effects. Still a lot of mystery. You're helping pierce that veil, if you will. But you know, before we get into all that, I am super curious of how you became a myconaut, how you got into mushrooms, and how you developed this relationship with Amanita muscaria. It was like two years ago now, which is well, two and a half, which is crazy to think about. But I wasn't into fungi or anything. And it was going through the fallout of being on benzodiazepines because of Hurricane Katrina. And mm. it was so traumatizing. And I tried to hang in there. And finally, you know, I was just having such severe panic attacks. That I was non-functional. My doctor put me on benzos. And five years later, like I started suffering severe memory loss to the point where I was thinking about I would need a caregiver. And I thought, you know what, this is not right. And I did the research, turns out, you know, can cause early onset dementia. So I tried to get off of them, and that opened up like all of the gates of hell. And I didn't realize that this stuff, you know, the damage that can do to your body and your brain, and that started just intense pain. Anyone who's ever tried to get off benzodiazepines knows that pain. And I would go down and then I couldn't take it anymore. I'd go back up on them. And I'm a pretty strong person, but this has nothing to do with will. It's just the intense pain and the intense panic and the, the nightmarish hell of days and nights blending together. And so finally, after five years of realizing I couldn't, another five years, so this is 10 years total, 
and I couldn't live like this anymore. I was not a mother anymore. My daughter moved out. I, I was dependent on Uber to get things that I needed. I was just not even a functional person and I was living in constant pain. And as you slowly, your life gets smaller like that with every passing month and you keep thinking, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And yet you're less and less and less until the point where I was just nothing. And I was just sitting on the back deck, just like, this is not living. And I had a big life and I knew I was here to, to play and do stuff. And I didn't want to be a burden to people. And I sure couldn't just keep waking up every day going, crap, you know, like my eyes opened and I'm like, damn it, why didn't I die? And getting really mad that I was awake every day. So it just, after a while, I was like, I need to just end this. So I planned my suicide. I mean, you know, everything, all the details. I, I had it all done. I even researched how to do it and how to leave the planet and make sure nobody would find my body except people that were qualified to. And I was sitting out back thinking, okay, well, I can feel here in a couple of days, it's going to be time to go. And I was perfectly fine to do it. And I thought, you know what? I should go walk the woods. Like that's something I haven't really done much. I don't think I was 50 feet into the woods when I found my first Amanita. And I'm like, what the hell is that? (laughs) (laughs) And I picked it and I brought it home and it was actually a Frostiana. And I have the picture of it in my phone. I'm thinking about printing it out and putting it on the wall. And I researched it, but I found out about muscaria and that it was nature's version of a benzodiazepine, that it, you know, mm. helped the whole GABA system in the brain. And I had been thinking my whole life, like nature has an answer for everything. Why not the most basic of things? And that's the fight or flight system. Why are we living in debilitating anxiety and panic? And there's nothing. Like, it didn't make sense to me. I had exhausted everything. And right when I decided, well, you know, I'll just leave. There she was. And she's like, guess what? I'm here. We need to enshrine that Omni that you first found. (laughs) Yes, a picture, a little shrine for saving your life. I mean, you just laid out an incredibly vivid story. And I always treat anyone who's had any experience with suicidal ideation with such reverence and such import because the amount of pain you have to be going through to where that option feels like the best option most of us can't really envision that you know we don't really understand what that's like so an incredible amount of trauma and just that that drew you into this world of the mushroom i mean it's yeah it's an incredible story but just to lay out a little bit cuz it sounds like you have some experience obviously with using benzodiazepines, you have learned about the biology of the brain and maybe what was going on. So yeah, I guess, tell us a little bit about as much as you know about the GABA system and maybe how that or how Amanita muscaria interacts with that system versus like a benzodiazepine to the best of your understanding, because I don't really understand it at all. So The fight or flight system is integral to our survival. So, you know, imagine being on the uh, savannas and needing to be able to hunt and that the adrenaline and that rush and the ability to take another animal's life, but at the same time have that skill to be able to run long distances and to play your role in that or having to forage and walk for days and days and days, you know, to get your food. So we have that system on board to teach us and to control our brains and our bodies to be able to put the blood where it's needed most. Mm 
And mm. when you're in that fight or flight set of hormones and chemicals, then what it's doing is it's taking blood out of the gut and putting it in the extremities and taking it away from the cortex, the thinking and the analysis and all that, and sort of pulling it into the reflexive so that, you know, people talk about doing things and they didn't even realize they did it in, in a moment of intensity. But then you also need to ha- be able to come back down, reason, be creative, sleep, be a problem solver, procreate, those kinds of things. So it's important to our survival. So it is highly controlled by the brain. And the way we got to be who we are as human beings is because we learned what was terrifying and scary and then wrote that into deeply into our brains so that we would learn, okay, this is bad, this is good. And it creates that trauma response and that PTSD response. But I believe we weren't supposed to carry the trauma and the PTSD. And that I believe our ancestors knew that. And they used mushrooms to clear the trauma, leaving the lesson behind. So that we grew intelligently as a species, building on the knowledge of our ancestors as they learned something and said, now you listen to me, no matter what you do, don't you ever do this. And then you learn that lesson and then you make a mistake and then you teach your children. But we weren't supposed to carry the trauma of this system. You know, we're supposed to flush that out using these entheogens. And so it's a highly controlled system. And when you don't clean that system out, then I believe we wind up a really sick society of just anxiety ridden people because that trauma response just keeps building up and building up and building up. And then, you know, when you're in a a kind of society that we're in today where we're so removed from the land and from nature and from the cycles of the earth, And then we're also like not eating really well and we're stressed all the time about our survival and we're not living in family groups and we're living estranged from elders and all of that. The stress, if ever we needed entheogens, it's now. And I don't think that I am alone in how I wound up. And I know now I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's so many of us that are living like this when this system goes very, very wrong. And so benzos what they did is they they used the amanita to develop well several things because the abatinic acid side of it which we can get into in a minute you know for it's a flavor enhancer and they went in a different direction and chose not to use it because the dosing threshold you know for toxicity is so small and then right. the other side of it the muscimol side which helps with the gaba a and gaba b receptors and so when you isolate something like science is just so obsessed with doing, which I just I still don't understand that we haven't learned our lesson yet, but we want to isolate some active ingredient out of an entire mushroom or a plant. And then we do trials, you know, in, in Petri dishes and with animals and then in human trials. And if we get efficacy, if we can just show an improvement to a certain percentage then we'll live with the side effects until it's egregious and costs enough money to have to pay out. And and we think that's the only way to go. And science doesn't even understand adaptogens, you know, medicines that are able to take a system that is a balancing system in the body, like the fight or flight response, 
And we don't know what adaptogens are or how they work. And it's only been recently that science has even said, okay, I think we believe in adaptogens now. We, we think that might be a thing, but they certainly don't understand how they could possibly work. And it seems, in my completely uneducated opinion, that the ibotenic acid and muscomol together in this mushroom as a whole are an adaptogen. And they and that's why, and I'm getting ahead of myself again about, you know, dosage thing is so difficult. So when we isolate something like that, not only do we take it out of the packaging that it came in and all of the entourage effects and yes. the protective effects of it, but then, you know, we put that isolated thing in a human and we're like, good luck. It worked in clinical trials, sort of. So, you know, good luck with that. And it turned out to be so damaging, their version, you know, a benzodiazepine version of muscomol. And it just, it was so damaging to the brain. And, and this mushroom and all of its intelligence and wisdom and beauty and adaptogenic effects has all of these other things that not only protect the brain, not only adapt your systems to balance, but actually heal damage. Like they do all three. It does all three. And we don't know how. We have no idea how it works. And maybe sometimes that's okay. You know, you have the experience, you understand that it does work and you find so much that, yes, that reductionism of trying to boil down what is the exact component responsible <laughs> for this. You know, we talk about it so much on my show that it feels like beating a dead horse. But I appreciate you laying that out about basically benzos being based off of these substances from Amanita muscaria. Then it would make sense that to maybe rebalance some of those levels or the effects that something like muscamol has would be to go back to the source. But it sounds like for you, this was like a totally chance encounter. You didn't know any of this consciously before you found your first Amanita. No. And when I saw what it did, I just sat and cried because I had been looking my whole life for nature's answer to this fight or flight system and to this whole panic situation. And I knew it had to be there. I mean, it just didn't make sense that it wouldn't be. And here I am about to leave the planet and I find it. And I'm like, of course I knew it was here. And then I was angry. Then I was mm -hmm. angry that, okay, when I found it, when I found what it did, I started to do the search to find, okay, where are all the YouTube channels? Where are all the forums about it? Where are all the books about it? And how the hell did I miss all this? And right. then I go out there to start doing all these searches and there's nothing. Right. I mean, except for like myths about Santa Claus. Yeah. There's no like practical information. And so I got into the research of it. And of course, everything all over the internet is so bad, the deadly and, you know, it's going to kill you and all this stuff. And, I, and it didn't make sense to me that it has a long and rich history all over the globe with indigenous people, and it's deadly. And now, I knew that the virosis, because I did the, the research on those, the death cat and destroying angels, all those are deadly. Do we have lore about them? Are they everywhere? Are they in stories? Well, <laughs> no, because they'll freaking right. kill you. So then why do we have all these stories and all of this indigenous use all over the globe with this with muscaria? And I'm like, something is not right here. And if it works, and if we have such a long storied past with it, why is no one talking about it? And when they do talk about it, why is it so mixed and so bad? And the information is horrible all over the internet. And that made, that scared me. That made me think something's, something's not clicking here. Something's not right. Even 
books that were written by respectable mycologists were listing it as a void and dangerous. And I don't know, the conflicting information scared me. Were those early kind of indigenous uses of this mushroom, whether we're talking about, you know, the Koryak people in Siberia, or I know there's a number of indigenous traditions that have stories of the Amanita. Was that kind of ended, did that end up being your starting point? Or what did you start to find that informed how you might be able to use this mushroom? I guess as you're scrabbling for answers, where did you find something to grab onto? Well, I'm a scientist by training and I used to teach uh, high school science. So, I mean, I went to the science first. I know how to read the, the data and I'll trust that over anything. And I trust right. my own perceptions of how to interpret the data and the science. So I trusted it. Everything that I read in the data, everything I read in the science said, this is the way to go. It's good. It's safe. Use it. Except then I would go out on the internet and get all that conflicting information. But good thing I was suicidal because I was like, well, if it kills me, it did me a favor. And if it helps, well, great. <laughs> I guess, yeah, when you had nothing left to lose, uh, becomes the perfect <laughs> arena to start experimenting. I guess in your mind, why is there this suppression? I know this is a massive topic we could spend you know, multiple podcasts about. But what is at the heart of the suppression? Because you find that too. When anyone you look into Amity Muscaria, the knee-jerk reaction from any mycologist, any source, is it is poisonous, stay away. I mean, where do you think this comes from when you, as a scientist, were able to look, find data that did not show that? How did this get started? I don't think I could have answered that before now. And what I've been through in the last two years, I think, has put me in a unique position to give you the answer that I'm about to give you. And I've never said this publicly. I was thinking about making a video about it soon. So I have a video about Amanita being the power mushroom. And it does something other than the things that we've discussed. And I get this from a lot of people that use it. They don't know that other people write to me and tell me this. It's just coming from their heart and they write to me. And they say, I finally am doing that thing that I've always wanted to do, but never had the confidence to do. I'm finally picking up where I left off 10 years ago on this thing that failed so many times. And this time I just know how to do it. I'm picking up this thing for the first time in my life, even though I've never felt like I was intelligent enough I feel like I'm living. I'm reaching my goals. I left this marriage. I'm finally going to settle down and have kids. I'm traveling. I'm. People are telling me this. It gives you this sense of, of ownership of yourself and the space that you hold here. It reminds you why you came here. It tells you, because it is the timekeeper mushroom, it distorts time. It brings you into the present moment directly, but it also gives you this sense of the fleetingness of it all and the importance of this moment. And you don't have time to waste and you didn't come here to be depressed or to not grab what you want to grab and do what you came here to do. And you need to do it. Do it now. Do it now. It is the time mushroom, and but it, it's also the chill out, 
take your time. If you don't feel like doing it, don't. It's it's not the right time. Mushroom. The problem is, I don't. I'm not trashing anybody. This is just the nature of, of human evolution over millennia that we figured out hormones are the best thing to use to get animals to be the best animals they can be. And we're kind of in conflict with our hormones because as humans, we're the intelligent thinking species and we can outthink our hormones. And so we can say, okay, yeah, we're driven during puberty to procreate, to be communicative, to create alliances and friendships. And then that sense of wanting to leave wherever home is and and venture, get out there and become. And I understand that masculine is not always the body that you're in, but masculinity as defined by current society is driven by testosterone. And in late puberty, for those that are driven by testosterone, there's a sense of needing to get away from what's comfortable and safe and go push your edge and rebel and see what you're made of, put yourself in fearful places, fight against the enemy and the battles of the things that are in your mind and, and in your heart and the things that you're afraid that you can't be and go. And that's why there's so many traditions all over the world in indigenous societies where the, the boys left to go do that and, and come home men. And it, it fits for the biology. And today, or not just today, but, you know, rather recently, we've taken that away from the men. Mm. Mm. And the women can still go through whatever their rites of passage are, which if you are a procreating female tends to be childbirth or whatever. But women still play that role in their femininity, but the males don't have that. And when we lived in family groups, the elders, the male elders, would get the males as they were starting to get that edge and start pushing and getting rambunctious and antsy and and that energy and that need to go would help train it and focus it and hone it in. You know, there was a there was a group of men that said, we get where you are make this tool, work on this thing, come walk with us for miles. We're going to go on a hunt. They would focus it until it was time for them to go to their ritual. But they were sort of fed into this this training. It is my opinion that as we've lost that, and then, and it's a very male-dominated mushroom, about Mm. 86% of my audience is male. They take the power mushroom and they turn into ass. There's no other way to put it. No channeling of that urge just comes out. And so what are you supposed to do with it when you feel like beating your chest? You're strong. You're powerful. You want to push your edge and there's nowhere to go with that. And they lash out at the people around them. I watch them do it all over the Internet. And it's destructive and it's dangerous. This mushroom in the wrong hands creates some of the sickest people 
that I've unfortunately run into. And it's not just me. Some other people that have tried to talk about this mushroom publicly that have YouTube channels, when they put up posts or videos about this mushroom, the vileness and the hate that shows up in the comments section, they're like, wow, what is going on? It's been enough for me to make me think about quitting so many times. And I've wound up leaving every group that I've been a part of, every forum that I've ever been on. And I've sequestered myself into safe spaces where I can block, 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 delete, delete, you know, just and move them on out. And so when I think in the past about shaman that dealt with this mushroom, there had to be the unruly ones. And after a while, it's like when you see this thing take someone who maybe already has a bit of a narcissistic edge to them and they're young and they're impressionable and then they take this mushroom a lot and they start cults like I'm watching it happen. I'm seeing it happen. They're starting cults and start a great one. Start a beautiful one. That That's awesome. But, you know, all kinds of belief systems have people who are not mentally healthy, who take them and use them and take advantage of weaker people. That's the story of human society. It's kind of why we're at where we're at. Yeah. And just because it's an entheogen and it can give you beauty and grace and enlightened feelings and, and help you have clarity doesn't mean it itself is perfection. It's only as good as the human using it. So when we talk about this kind of blanket suppression of the Amanita, let's say it's always called toxic, it's not maybe thoroughly explored the way it should be, it's not given the kind of objectivity we might expect. I mean, usually when that happens with an entheogen, I assume, okay, this is being controlled by the people in power, whether that's at the top of you know a governmental pyramid or at the top of something else, because it inspires something in the ingester that would threaten the very structure of that hierarchy. So, you know, when we talk about psilocybin mushrooms, when we talk about cannabis, some of these things, it changes people's mindsets, makes them less apt to believe in those kind of hierarchical structures or want to grind away in those systems for other people's benefit. Hence, my, again, like you said, completely uneducated (laughs) opinion is, that becomes a threat, it is suppressed. This one is unique in that it's not suppressed legally, and it's almost like what you're describing is there may be a reason, even by the people that had the knowledge about this mushroom, to not disseminate it without some kind of almost like apprenticeship or some kind of initiation that would make you ready to use this mushroom, especially it sounds like if you have a more masculine energy to you, so you don't turn into an asshole, as you so aptly put it, you know, is that kind of endless too? It's not just, it would threaten power structures, but it's also like, for lack of a better word, the cult of the mushroom or the spiritual group holding the knowledge of this mushroom, like didn't want the profane masses to get a hold of it and totally abuse it. It would be anarchy and chaos. Seriously. I see that. It's my opinion. But, you know, I'm one of those people, I'm not very much for conspiracy theories. I think that a lot of things just freaking happen 
from one moment to the next and build up over time. And then you just find out, well, here we are. And we got here by being normal people. And I don't think humans were any different 30,000 years ago than they are today. And I watch how I want to draw this thing and I want to tattoo it on my body and I want to talk about it. <laughs> and they, they had to have done the same thing. You know, we're not, we're just not that different. And one of the things, and I'm a very autonomous person. I believe in the autonomy of the mind and of the entheogens and of what you put in your body. And I don't believe in gatekeeping and I don't believe in telling other people, you know, that this is my space or my mushroom. Like it's the more the merrier that it's not mine. It doesn't belong to anybody. And I found myself recently after just getting really fed up with the the craziness on Reddit and, and forums and just trying to help, just showing up. People ask a question and I'm like, okay, I've set aside 10 minutes to answer questions. And actually, well, this is what the study showed. This is what research shows. And then just nothing but hate and vile comments and arrogance and name calling. And I get so fed up that I find myself thinking things like, you know what? I don't think any male under 25 should be touching this thing. And if I could have my way, we'd put them through a school first and we'd check out their mental health because this thing in the wrong hands. And then I'm like, yeah, except that that's just not my belief system and whatever, you know, to each right. their own. But I can only imagine what elders in the past, you know, would lock it up and try to keep and then, you know, the teens or whatever, getting into it and tripping on it and then turning into animals. And then they got to try to rein them in and be like, oh, my God, because they had they're not any different today than they were then. And we know we can't grow these mushrooms, at least not yet. We know how complex of a connection it is with the bacteria and the pH of the soil and the connections of the roots and how they are the networking mushroom. And so we we can't grow it. And then, you know, they'll show up on forums. I grew it. Like, oh, really? You just you you just learned about this mushroom two weeks ago and you're growing it, you know? And and when you try to say kindly, look, here's what the science shows. This is the research. We can't grow it. And then the name calling. Well, I'm going to grow it. I'll show you. And it's so many of them. It's not just one. It's just this piling on effect. And all of and the 30 grams, I take 30 grams. You shouldn't be telling people to microdose this. You're a liar. You know the truth about this mushroom. You just don't want other people to be enlightened. It's like, okay, look, if you take 30 grams and you're not dead, well, good for you. Well, not dead. It can't kill you. But I mean, you're not in a coma or brain damage or whatever. Like, I can't imagine people taking 30 grams and being okay with it. But some people actually really can do that. Most people take the equivalent because I don't like to talk about it in grams. And that's another whole thing. The equivalent and and can trip on one or two grams decently and everything in between. But it is highly irresponsible to tell anyone you're taking any more than five to eight. And that's on a high end. But again, you can't talk about it like that. That's just how the world likes to discuss it. And our instinct is to treat it like psilocybin. And I know it's so much different. And I want to get into the preparation, the actual, you know, in your kind of blend of scientific research and personal experience, what the proper kind of usage protocol, if you will, is or something that's worked for you. But I'm just impressed at this wave 
of hate not coming from like an authority or an institution, but coming from the general community of people who it sounds like are trying to use this mushroom and are interested in this mushroom. But the fact that you're somehow getting involved, you have this huge pushback. It's just not something I see in, you know, dipping my toes in other entheogenic communities and reading like psilocybin forums and other, you don't really get this kind of violent reaction. That's really interesting. And I love your idea about like the lack of ritual and the lack of male or masculine mentorship to channel those urges, those like masculine energy urges. I'm sure that probably plays into it. And that may be at the root of a lot more of the horrible behavior. But yeah, I guess, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, the actual preparation? You've actually just laid out a pretty fundamental principle in that this mushroom's toxicity will not kill you, right? So yeah, maybe start there. Like, what is the truth around this toxicity issue? And then what are the ways that you found to prepare it depending on what you're trying to achieve? So it has ibotenic acid and muscimol, and in its raw state sitting in the ground, it is probably 90% ibotenic acid. Ibotenic acid is considered the toxin in the mushroom, and you eat too much of it, you'll get sick, you'll throw up, whatever, you won't have a, a really good time of it. And a lot of mushrooms do that. And, you know, I mean, even ayahuasca, you'll throw it up or whatever. So it's not like this, oh my God, it's going to kill you, don't eat it. It's just, you'll throw up, you know, chill on it, just either convert it or, you know, it's a dose dependent thing. And it's an excitotoxin. And that means that in really, really small doses, and I proposed this on camera about a year ago, I took a bite of it raw, and I got the most amazing feeling that felt a lot like Adderall, only smoother and cleaner, and I got a lot done. And I could see it being used as an ADD medication if we could get it studied and get some decent information, science information on it. But it's just dose dependent. Very, very tiny doses do a lot. You need very, very little. And then that, but that same amount of muscimol won't do much. So you need to convert the ibotenic acid to the muscimol. And that's where the trip comes from and the calming side of the mushroom, the healing side, the kind that turns down that anxiety. And that side you have to do the conversion for. And even if you overdosed on muscimol, all it's going to do really in an extreme situation is put you in a coma and you'll be there for 24 hours and then they'll send you home, no worse for wear and a good story to tell. And probably a pretty high medical bill if you're in the United States. So it's not deadly. I just can't imagine like if you were doing excessive amounts of it repeatedly, putting yourself in and out of a coma. I don't know anything about that side of it. I don't want to know. But it looks to me like this. And this is the other thing that bothers me. A lot of people think, oh, you're just supposed to trip on it. And what I'm seeing is where this mushroom really shines is in the microdosing. And people that even say, like, it didn't do anything for me, I didn't get anything, I laugh to myself because I'm like, yeah, you just wait, just wait. And they'll take it just that once, maybe. But then they'll come back later and go, is it possible that just that one time that I thought I didn't get anything has had this lasting effect? Because these are the changes I've made, and I feel so different, And but I didn't feel it at the time. And so this thing works 
either like in the sub perceptible doses or even in a macro dose and then in in large you know heroic or whatever recreational doses it has so many uses on the ibotenic acid side and then on the muscomol side and then in the way you prepare it and so the problem with it is that any one mushroom if you take two mushrooms that are the exact same size one can have 10 times the amount of ibotenic acid than another one. And then you can get a a saucer sized one and it can have a 10th of the muscomol that would be in one, you know, that's half its size. So there's nothing about size of a mushroom that's going to determine how much of an active ingredient is in it. Hence you can't dose it just by grams. Exactly. And you can hot dose because if you get a small one that's say, I don't know, five centimeters in diameter. You can wind up with a hot dose in that thing. And you think, oh, I just want to take something really mild. So I'll take two or three caps and I'll boil them and I'll, you know, convert it and I'll take it. And then you wind up blasting off and then, you know, you can't see and you're, you can, you pee on yourself and you wind up asleep on the floor, waking up in it and the next morning and like, what the hell happened? And that's called hot dosing because you don't know how much is in any one cap. And so to help normalize the solution, I came up with this recipe and this method. It was the first video I ever made where you just measure out 15 grams. I don't care how much you measure out. It was just a decent number. (laughs) I just decided 15. (laughs) And it seemed like that's how they were sold on the Internet. So 15 grams and then a cup of water. And that way you're dealing with eight caps ish, you know, so that you normalize that hot dose effect. You get the weak ones, you get the strong ones, and you create a normalized liquid. I see. And then you do it by volume. So you do it by the mill or by the teaspoon. So you get kind of a median concentration, like an average concentration of active amanita compounds, and then take it from that volume. Yeah, really, really smart preparation method. It's the only way I could think of. And of course, every time you make a new batch, it's going to be a little bit different. But the hope is that when you're dealing with that many different kinds of caps, up to 15 grams, you know, anything lower and you wind up still worrying about that hot dose situation. So I don't know. 15 just felt right. It was an intuitive kind of thing. And then starting out with your micro dose before you hero dose. And I have a microdosing schedule protocol thing that I laid out. And so you just start tiny. It doesn't take much. And then you just work your way up until you feel like, okay, that's my microdose. And I happen to have started out at a really high dose because I didn't know. And I tripped the very first time I used it. But after that, I started at an eighth of a teaspoon because I'm in America. But I was still kind of dealing with a lot of anxiety. So I bumped that up to a half a teaspoon. But now my microdose is a like three quarters to a teaspoon, depending. I guess just in the context of your own personal recovery, you know, how quickly did this start to change what you were feeling after all those years of benzodiazepines going up and down and the withdrawals? And, you know, how maybe how soon after did you kind of realize this approach and start doing it more regularly? And then how did that start to change some of those effects that you had or some of those negative effects you were feeling still from the benzos? When I took it, 
because we're so based in Western medicine, well, I am, that I thought, okay, I'll treat it like a medication. I'll take it. And then I'll take it for the rest of my life every day. And, (laughs) you know, I'm just going to be on this for the rest of my life. And I turned, you know, it turned out I tripped that first time and I woke up the next morning with no pain, no anxiety. I didn't take my medicine that night. I was too tripped out to, to remember. And the absence of anxiety, it was the first time in my life. And so I didn't know that I was living in a constant state of anxiety till that morning when I woke up. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is what no anxiety feels like. Have I been living with it my whole like I've never known this kind of level of bliss and beauty and peace and the absence of muscle spasms and joint pain. I felt like I was 20 again. I, I couldn't wrap my brain around what was happening. So I thought I was still tripping, except that right. I had clarity and focus. I wasn't tripping. I knew I wasn't tripping. And I cried. I just sat on the floor and I sobbed and I cried. And I'm like, okay, this can't last. Something bad. This is just too good to be true. It, it lasted. It didn't come back. <laughs> that hell was gone. It was just gone. I wanted to highlight that because that kind of anecdote to me is some of the most powerful evidence behind you know, why we should be exploring a certain substance. And I know it can be really easy for people to dismiss something or really easy, you know, especially when we think of like big institutional science to dismiss something like that. But when you hear the story and you bring it to a personal level, I can't deny that experience. I can't prove that this person didn't have, I mean, what they're describing is a absolutely transformational experience. So obviously this in the context of this whole interview, we're not encouraging anyone to take these substances. Everyone has to do their own research. Everyone has to mediate their own relationships with whatever they put in their body. But for people that are really skeptical or thinking, you know, oh man, this this just isn't true. These people are talking about like trip reports. and it's, No, this is an anecdotal experience, physiological experience someone had who was dealing with pain from withdrawal and years of using pharmaceutical drugs. And I think everyone's finally gotten over the fact that, yeah, a lot of pharmaceutical drugs are really bad for us. The pharma industry isn't here to to necessarily help us. So yeah, just that kind of story and that effect gives you a, a big reason to take a serious look at what we're talking about. Did you then, I mean, was this kind of a lasting effect? What came next? The next night, of course, my body has been trained to have anxiety constantly. Like that's how my brain worked. So when the anxiety started to come back, not until the evening, that's when I took like the eighth of a teaspoon. And within about 15 minutes, the anxiety was gone and I slept like a baby. And again, the next night, the anxiety started to come back. I took a little bit more, you know, like a quarter of a teaspoon. So I thought that's what I'm going to have to do. That's my dose. But on the fourth night, I went to take it and I felt repulsed by it and I didn't take it and I didn't get anxiety. And it took about four days before my body said, Hey, you should, you should take some. And that's when I realized, Holy shit. Like my own body's telling me what to do here. Like Mm. I don't need a prescription. And it turned into 
what would be sort of a similar thing that other people started telling me, you know, we created the forum and I started getting feedback from people. And so the protocol that I created was based not on just my experiences, but also the accumulated experiences of thousands of other people that were talking to me about their dosing experiences. Insanely, insanely powerful. And you talked before about how our society has so much latent anxiety and stress and trauma. I mean, just driving a 2,000 pound, multiple ton metal vehicle across each other at high speed. A spiritual teacher I work with talk about that we're constantly running from tigers. You know, ancient man would have had the same kind of responses running from a predator that we have <laughs> just driving our cars. So, yeah, you talk about that fight or flight system just being totally overloaded all the time. What you're describing offers so much hope and gets me just so excited hearing about it. I just love that you've actually been able to explore this and bring some of this knowledge back. And obviously, like I said, everyone has to mediate their own relationship. But for you, just walk us through a little bit of that process. You described it really well, but you've sourced your Amanita muscaria. How are you taking it home to prepare it? So I have that, the how to prepare it. I originally made it for low dosing and for microdosing. But, you know, since then, I've learned of people taking really large doses. And so you have to do a little bit more to it if you want to get rid of all of the ibotenic acid. Because if people that are taking really large doses, you'll get enough ibotenic acid to make you sick. So that recipe that I have for cooking it for like 20 minutes in a cup of water, that 15 grams. And then if you add lemon juice, the acid, anything like below 2.7 will push more conversion. So we also know, and there's a, a rumor out there that, and it's wrong, that if you just dry them, any temperature, just drying them converts all the ibotenic acid to muscimol. And that's so dangerous. I've heard that drying it in the oven converts it all. Yeah. I don't understand that. It, not even in the oven. I've seen people just saying drying it outside or put a fan on it. Even mycologists on YouTube right now are telling people that. So it doesn't because you need a fluid medium for chemical reactions to take place. And as you're drying it, those chemical reactions are slowing down until it's dry and you have no more chemical reactions. So you also need heat. So if you dry it at room temperature, you're going to get maybe three, five, three to 5% conversion to muscimol. So if you heat them at 165 degrees Fahrenheit, there's a narrow range there. Any much higher than that and you'll wind up breaking the cell walls and you'll lose everything. So like between 155 and 165 Fahrenheit, I, I forgot what the conversion is for Celsius and that'll convert a good 30%. And then when you boil it in water and no boiling won't kill the ibotenic acid or the muscimol, it won't destroy it. Then you'll convert another 30%. And then an acid at 2.7 or lower, which lemon juice is a very stable acid and it will convert another 30%. So, you know, that's a decent amount of conversion for microdosing, but for people that are going to be taking really large doses, you can push it further than that clearly by just letting elongating all of that. So putting it in water and, and cooking it for a whole lot longer, maybe put the acid in at the same time and let it go as long as you feel like keep an eye on it, keep adding water to it. People are talking about putting citric acid in there instead of lemon juice. I don't know why they think that's going to be better, but citric acid is actually a highly unstable acid. 
and you could wind up only dipping into the 2.7 range periodically and it just tastes nasty. Seriously, lemon juice works. It's a stable acid. You can use it. <laughs> but also, um, Dr. Trent Austin, a lot of people have heard, or maybe they haven't heard of the Austin patent for the conversion of ibotenic acid to muscamol. But uh, back in 2011, he was trying to patent it. He had developed and wrote a patent. He was going to patent that, his process. And because of his research, he learned about fermentation and the lactobacillus bacteria. I was going to ask about that based on Kevin Feeney's book. Oh my yeah, God, that, it's so fascinating too. It's so cool. The work so, with raw milk or just lactobacillus yes. acid. Did you or, see yeah. the round table that they did? Is this with Peter McCoy? Or? Yes. Everybody needs to go watch that. That's that's fascinating. So it, Trent, Dr. Trent Austin was in that too with Kevin Feeney. And so Dr. Austin is the one that's been pioneering this thing about looking at the lore and the ancient use. And I am science-based, but I don't rule out ancient use. As a matter of fact, it's because of ancient use that I have been doing what I don't, I'm not even, I can't find anyone else doing it because I'd love to talk to him about it, but I've been doing an oil extraction, which we can talk about in a minute, which shouldn't actually work, but it does. But ancient use tells us where to go and where to look, you know, where to dig. And so Dr. Austin wondered why this whole milk thing, like, why are they throwing this thing in milk to find out it kills flies? There must be something to it. And our milk today is pasteurized, but raw milk has lactobacillus in it. And so he learned that lactobacillus will, through the fermentation process, convert all, like 99.95% of the ibotenic acid to muscimol. It's brilliant. So, and it only takes two or three days. So if you're patient and you really like to ceremony and you really want to make a ceremony out of it, I can't think of a better ceremony than that, but you'd have to get your hands on some lactobacillus bacteria, which I'm pretty sure is in kombucha and yogurt. And of course it's probably added in because of the pasteurization process and raw milk is illegal in most of the United States. But if you, if you know someone that's got a dairy. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you tried it using that method of mixing it with raw milk or something that had lactobacillus in it. Uh, have you had a chance to try that? No, because I'm just now working on the oil extraction. So that's yeah, what's, next. what's going on with the oil extraction. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I was in a Facebook group before I unceremoniously got kicked out. And it's kind of like my hobby now is getting kicked out of groups. But this guy was in there and he said, Hey, there's this Russian recipe. You put it in oil, blah, blah. blah. And I was like, okay, according to science, the active ingredients in this thing are water soluble, not, fat soluble. So you would be wasting your time. But I also knew like where ancient use and ancient recipes are, there's a reason. Sometimes the reason is only because they didn't have electricity. So they did this thing, but it doesn't actually affect the, you know, you don't have to do that today. But that just flies in the face of everything we know. But they wouldn't have wasted precious amanita, sticking them in oil like that for six weeks and letting it steep if it didn't work. And so it's right. this ancient Russian recipe. And I know it's it's biased to say things that are coming from those North countries out of Siberia and Russia that I give them more weight. I don't know why I do that, except that we there's a study that I saw recently that showed that genetically they are the original Amanita from that area, the genetically original ones, and that all the others branched out from those. But that just means it's been 
used longer, I think, by humans, which I'm totally just making that up. Well, and when you think about the most ubiquitous stories about the Amanita, you know, it conjures the Siberian, the Koryak people, you know, when Linkoff and the crew went to research that area in the Kamchatka Peninsula, that was where you had stories of modern usage. So yeah, that makes sense. In my mind, I equate that with kind of the most relevance when we talk about, yeah, traditional yeah. Amanita use. So I thought, okay, I'll try it. So I ordered some off the internet. I didn't want to use mine. And I, the recipe that he gave, I followed it. I put them in the oil, let them six, sit for the six weeks or whatever. And then I put it on my skin. I have like a knee and I have a back thing that are left over from, you know, the trauma from those benzodiazepines. And I had worked in the yard. I had back pain. I'm like, well, it's only got another week to go before it's ready. I'll try it. And I mean, within 20 minutes, that area was warm. The inflammation had gone down. The pain was gone. I slept without pain. I wasn't sore the next day. I'm like, okay, well, placebo effect, which is a valid effect. And if that's what it did, cool, whatever. So what I did is I still had the mushrooms that had soaked in that oil. And I thought, well, here, this will be the test. I'll cook them the same way that I do for my tea and I'll take the tea and see how much active ingredients are still left in them. And there's a good 25, I guess, caps. And I made the tea and I took some and that the amount I took with 25 caps should have been a lot. I should have really felt it. I didn't feel anything. So I just kept taking it all night long, just taking more and more and more and more and never felt a thing. So the next night I just drank a big old cup of it. Nothing, nothing. There was nothing in it. All the active ingredients were pulled out in the oil. It's really bizarre. And I've spoken to some people that are in, in research and names that, that we know. And I don't want to go public with anything about this yet. And I don't want to speak for them. But to say that we are intrigued is an understatement. And then I tried the oil orally, which is dangerous because I don't know how much of that is ibotenic acid. If it's just an entourage effect that I don't know what's right, going on. It's not on. necessarily converting anything. I don't know. I have no idea. But I can tell you it is another whole way to experience this mushroom, as is smoking it. There are so many ways to use this mushroom, and you get a different effect with each one of them. So different preparations, different effects. Up until this point, we have been talking about a method of preparation where you have a liquid solution. And I guess just to confirm, you know, we were talking about mixing the different caps to dilute the overall solution and then taking... Are you cooking those caps beforehand, just boiling them? What's your conversion process in that in that first preparation method we talked about? For the tea? Yeah. Well, if I buy them off the internet, I have to assume they weren't dried at heat. So I have to assume when I get them, they're still mostly ibotenic acid. So those, I'm going to break off the parts that I need now for the oil conversion. And the rest of them, I'm going to split them up. I'm going to smoke some of them, and then I'm going to boil the others. And I weigh them out, 15 grams, cook it in the water, add lemon juice. But I'm going to cook these longer because they weren't dried at heat. So, okay. But because I'm microdosing, I'm just not that worried about it. But if I'm going to do a recreational dose, then I'm going to cook it longer, add more lemon juice. This is kind of like the Amanita Dreamer protocol that you're codifying you know, in your YouTube video or in your videos on your website for anyone who wants to go learn more about this, but you have the aqueous tea solution where you're basically boiling it in water to do the conversion, then mixing it with lemon juice to do that further conversion, longer time, depending on how much of a overall dose you're gonna take to limit any ibotanic acid. Then you have this oil method where 
sounds like question marks all over the place in terms of like what's converting it, how much ibutanic versus muscimol, but you're basically taking the raw mushroom and just soaking it in oil and you're getting there's that a, effect. There's a special way to do it that you can't just shove them in there. And I don't want to talk too much about it publicly because I'm still experimenting with it. And I don't want to just tell people to do stuff. And then because sure. being me, I think I'm pretty clear in my videos when I say, okay, these are your warnings. This is what I can say. This is what I'm not going to go past. And then people will write to me with horrible experiences and going, I did exactly what you said. I did X, Y, Z. And I'm like, I never said X, Y, Z. People hear what they want to hear or they do right. what they want to do. And on a podcast, I can't go back and edit it and make absolutely certain I covered my bases and that I said everything properly. So I'm going to, I just don't want to talk too much about the oil thing yet. Yeah. Let's leave that preparation off the table. But what was interesting is that it sounds like you were applying that topically, not ingesting it. So that had potentially a different effect applying it topically, which is really interesting. And then you're talking about smoking it. Was there any special preparation you have to do with smoking it or does the heat from that do any kind of conversion or? Smoking it has become my new favorite thing. Okay. Cause I've never heard of that. Let me tell you. Okay. So when you microdose it, that does, it seems like it's more medicinal microdosing, very healing, very transformative. And then the oil is a completely different body feeling where it feels like its main purpose is reducing inflammation, reducing pain in the synapses, in the limbs and the joints and everything. And, but it, you do get like a body effect. I am experimenting with the oil orally, but I'm not ready to talk about that yet. We'll leave that one off the table. Yeah. <laughs> and then the smoking is an entirely different thing. And I do that shamanically when I want to walk with the Amanita and it is the fast track to the elders. So when you see my videos of our drumming sessions, especially on the solstices, I smoke a lot and I get in a trance state and it's like the elders are sitting on my shoulder, just right there around me. I feel very close to the Amanita entities that I met when I did psilocybin. So it's a very trance-like, heart-centered, ethereal, soaring, flying feeling. So mm. yeah, when I want to walk with the ancestors and I want to do creative work and I, and I want to drum and I want to move things, that's, I smoke it. So that's the more spiritual, out-of-body, ethereal experience. A lot of people, when approaching this idea, you know, the common things I get are, oh, Amanita, that makes you trip, right? I'm like, well, it's not exactly like that. But of course, I can't really speak from experience. <laughs> oh, no, it is. It is. Okay. <laughs> I made a trip simulation video. It's on my website because YouTube just censors me so badly. But... Yeah, it's very much a trip. It's more of a, for me, more of a physical on the earth trip. Very messing with your reality. Like you can see several realities happening simultaneously. That sense of urgency of I got to be outside. No, I got to be inside. Not to get back outside. I got to get back inside. So I understand the rabbit. You know, I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. And that whole falling down the rabbit hole and feeling large and feeling small. And some visuals, just not the color kinds of visuals, but very fractal, fragmented kinds of visual stuff. 
And then, of course, the transformative effects of it and what it does for your sense of power and your sense of purpose and all of that. But then smoking it, you all, I, I smoke it every evening, but it doesn't have the same effect. It doesn't have a long-term effect like microdosing the tea does for the microdosing protocol. So like I make a smoke blend that I sell and it there's Amanita in it and, and other things in it. And I smoke that blend in the evening. And it's a it's that come down five o'clock, have a martini, have a beer time. Well, I don't drink alcohol, so I smoke a couple of hits off my smoke blend. And then it gives you a little bit of focus and energy. And I'll do the dishes, dinner, whatever, and then chill out for bed. But I will also take the tea if I'm in the middle of a dosing protocol. I'll do the tea right. as part of my microdosing protocol. So it sounds like different preparations, different effects than of those different preparations, different amounts that you take, you know, whether it's smoking different amounts, taking different amounts as a tea, that's going to lead you to a very different effect. So it sounds like, yeah, there's a big kind of learning curve and learning your own body and how you react to it. And do you find that with people that other people's reactions are much different than yours, you know, even at the same dosages and preparations? It's crazy how different it is. There is no one size fits all. And people get frustrated when they watch my dosing videos and I don't give them a dose because you may take the equivalent of or cook, you know, the 15 grams and drink half of it and think you feel nothing, but wake up feeling amazing, but you just never really felt anything from it. And then here I am, you know, tripping on my amount, which I can say would be considerably less. And then one person's micro, I know someone that takes three tablespoons as a microdose. And here I am on a teaspoon as a microdose. And I know some people that take one hit of straight Amanita and they're like flying. And then I smoke it. I'll probably get take 20 good deep hits to get in the trance state where I want to be. It's all over the place. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like it's necessarily like it wouldn't necessarily be coordinated to like body mass or anything like that. Really interesting. So along with all the other caveats about safety, and we're not encouraging you to take it and do your own research. If you do decide to explore this, it sounds like you have to very slowly push your own boundaries, starting really, really small. Probably good with any kind of entheogenic substance, even any kind of wild mushroom you want to eat. I always tell people, try like the tiniest bit before you start eating it. So that, that sounds like very much still the rule of thumb. This mushroom definitely will tell you what to do with it. You just have to go slow and keep in mind, I've been doing this for two and a half years on the regular. I have them in my life every single day and I go long periods without using them, but then I'll go through long periods where I'm experimenting on myself. So I feel very well versed and capable and competent with this mushroom and what I'm doing. So me spouting off what I'm doing is the results of two and a half years. There are people that have been using it for 10 years, but not very many. So if you're new, like go small, take your time, learn one prep method, learn how you feel about it, learn how you react to it. And then over time, experiment with a different way. It's This is a long-term thing. It's not a hero dose every three months and then microdosing in between like you get like a reverse adaptogenic effect to it, which is why the protocol spaces it out longer and longer and longer. And then it's over. And then you go as long as you need to go until you go through the protocol again. 
So it it's so different from psilocybin. You just can't compare them. Yeah, maybe throw everything you think you know about entheogens or set it to the side and you need to treat this as something entirely different. And as you've done a lot of this pioneering work, and we've heard about maybe that toxic side of the community, maybe, you know, men ages 16 to 30 who are taking this mushroom and lashing out and being horrible. But what other kind of community is kind of arising? Because I'm starting to hear these thoughts echoed in some different corners of the mushroom community, people saying, hey, I've gone out and done some of this work. And I know a lot of people have actually referenced your work, and then they kind of adapt their own protocols. You know, what kind of body of knowledge are we starting to form based on Amanita muscaria use? Is it the kind of thing where now we are like much better informed than when you started even two years ago? How is that changing? And then how do you see that changing into the future? Do we have hope that we can eventually get some kind of like codified understanding akin to what you might find in like a shroomery.org about psilocybin or an earwid about other entheogens? Well, first, let me say I'm not a mycologist and I'm not a researcher. And there was already an incredible body of knowledge and amazing minds doing amazing work on the entire Mm. genus, but specifically on the muscaroids. And so the only reason I did what I did is because I had their research. The research has always been there. The research is there, but maybe not brought down to like the practical uninitiated level, if you will. Right. So, and there was no forum dedicated to it. It just sort of fit in in tiny spaces in the other forums. So we made a forum the Amanita Research Forum, and for people to talk about the Amanita. So that's there. And then I didn't know that Kevin Feeney was putting this book together. I just knew of his research. And so when I found out about the book, I'm like, of course, of course that book was being (laughs) written. It should have been written. So it turns out I was thinking of this while he was thinking of it. He did it the way he does it best by putting it into a book. And then I did it by using what was convenient, which was YouTube and just the learning curve of all that. And the only thing I'm contributing, which doesn't feel like much to me, is I'm just ballsy. Like, I don't know what my problem is that I feel like I can get on the internet and talk out of my ass about the shit I'm learning about this mushroom. But I do, and I'm not afraid to do it, where it seems like everyone else in this field who's way smarter than me are in their niche, but they're staying there because when they branched out, they ran up against the opposition, the assholes, the power that be, the shaming. Don't tell people of this mushroom. You're you're not you know, you're going to get sued. And just, and people are like, fine, I'll leave it alone. I'll I'll do what I do best. And each right. person has done what they do best. And I think the only thing I do best is I'm Grand Central Station. I put people together. I network the way the mycelium of this mushroom networks. And it knew that about me. And it said, let us teach you our ways. We will teach you how to network. And in your networking, you will spread the news of us and you will help us spread and help the humans. I think that's the highest aspiration we can have is to mimic the mushroom mycelium and connect people like that. And you're doing it about the world's most famous mushroom which again is another reason why I'm usually stunned that myself and so many people don't really know the truth, maybe and definitely not the lived experience of what it is to use this mushroom. I think there's this growing tide of people realizing like, yeah, it's not going to kill you. 
It's not as poisonous as we've been taught for the past few decades, but then there's still that knowledge gap from actually using it. And it takes a ballsy pioneer like yourself to just push those boundaries, find out use protocols, and then disseminate that. So I'm excited to watch this growth and watch your work. But where can people find your work? Because we talked about the censorship, you know, the big tech kind of striking down your videos, even though you're not talking about a substance that is federally, state, anything kind of illegal. Uh, so where can people actually get a hold of your work and do the deep dive on your research? Well, it started out on YouTube, but now that they've, they're removing not just my videos about the Amanita, but everybody's videos about the Amanita, they'll eventually get them all. So I built a website. It's AmanitaDreamer.net. Think of me running around with a net, grabbing Amanitas. That's where I've uploaded all of my videos and they're free. They're there. I'm not going to gatekeep it the same way I didn't on YouTube. They're right on the landing page. You don't have to search for them. You just land and start watching. Yeah. So if any of this piques your interest, I definitely recommend going and watching the videos. I think one of your other gifts is you are very down to earth and approachable and you are definitely not trying to gatekeep. You're not trying to come from any elevated position. You're sharing your own experience. And I think I get the most out of that kind of transmission. So I really encourage people to check that out. And a question I just thought of, because you talked about, you know, the Amanita kind of speaking to you and telling you kind of how to use it and having some of these experiences. I mean, was a lot of your spiritual life as it is now born just out of these two years of using this mushroom? No, I have a long history of trying to deal with my anxiety any way that I could. And society says you're supposed to breathe right. You're supposed to do tapping or EFT. And then there's therapy and there's meditation. So, I mean, I've read every Eastern philosophy. I love Eckhart Tolle. I mean, I've been an, a journeyer just without entheogens my whole life and just nothing worked because I was so overrun with anxiety. Nothing could help me. I couldn't achieve any other state of anything other than just coming right back down to panic and anxiety but I'm very science-based. And so I always looked for the reasons why meditation worked. They knew that it, quote, worked, whatever worked means. It gave you a sense of peace and the hormones and you know, neurotransmitters that it would release or whatever. But I've always been very science-based. But after I used Amanita and I started hearing the mushroom talk to me, I'm like, okay, this is how people become schizophrenic using these things, right? This is schizophrenia. I'm hearing voices. Right. But it wasn't outside of me. It was a voice inside of me. And like, oh, well, it's just my higher self. That's my higher self. Except that I knew it was not. I know what my higher self sounds like. This is a personality unto itself. And the more I used this and journeyed with it, I would meet them face to face and be able to put a face to a, a voice and go, oh, you're the one. Oh, well, you're the one. So there's three of them. And I've made a video about the three entities. And other people have since said they've met those entities. And I'm sitting here like a science person talking about meeting entities. And at first, it was difficult for me to be public about it because of the shaming I would get. And that I would then not be respected by the science side of this and the scientists that are doing the scientific work. And then I would be dismissed and not really respected in this arena. But at some point, it became so permanent and so real and so inescapable that I finally reached a point where I couldn't send the message I needed to send to the people that needed to hear it. If I didn't embrace these entities and embrace 
this mushroom and the higher aspects of it, that they are intelligent. They are sentient. I've met them. They are their own living thing. They have their own lives and their purposes and the things that they ask of us. And I live in service to them. They gave me the life I have now. And I'm happy to sound like a crazy person for the mushroom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think so many people who develop a relationship with fungi feel that. And I love to tease that out because for you, you know, you're coming from a scientific background. When someone says that kind of thing about mushrooms, this isn't coming from a place of like, this person's crazy. Like, no, they're often really grounded. And this is a lived experience. And I think finally, as a culture, we're starting to realize those kind of anecdotes and those kind of experiences people have can't just be dismissed. You know, as we find new tools to measure things and science starts catching up with maybe like more spiritual traditions, like everything is one, we couldn't really understand that in a scientific sense until we got the tools for like DNA sequencing microorganisms more effectively and really figuring out what's going on. So I think the science is starting to catch up with some of those spiritual knowings. And that's why I always like to see where people are coming from when they have that kind of spiritual, intuitive sense of things, because I think it's completely valid and really powerful. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that side of yourself. Well, yeah, this has been a really powerful interview. You've kind of illuminated this mushroom in a whole new light for me. And I'm someone who I've interviewed Kevin Feeney. I've done my reading around this, but speaking with someone who's had direct experience, it kind of takes things to another level uh, and really gets me really excited. So, so glad we had the chance to come on and talk with you. And, you know, to wrap things up, I'll ask you a couple of the questions I like to ask all my guests. And I'm going to change the first one a little bit to say, what is a mushroom you love besides Amanita muscaria and why? Another mushroom that you love and why that you want to share with us? I want to say psilocybin's because of that eight and a half gram trip that I took and what that did. But honestly, probably reishi. Reishi. It it fixes everything. Yeah. <laughs> Allergies, <laughs> infections, swelling, inflammation. Yeah. Reishi's my go-to. Have you noticed that other mushrooms kind of go hand in hand with the Amanita in terms of kind of long-term beneficial effects? Have you ever found that like, oh, reishi and amanita seem to go together well, or maybe psilocybin and amanita, you know, these two mushrooms that we think of in psychoactive terms? For the physical body, reishi and amanita do work, in my opinion, synergistically. If you have inflammation issues or whatever, maybe you should try it. There's We're working on, and you know, there's some research going on about inflammation and amanita. But the spiritual side of psilocybin and amanita they counteract each other so like if you're tripping and you go to the er they'll give you a benzo to kill the trip so if you're taking lsd or psilocybin technically amanita should should reduce the trip it should kill it and i don't want to waste you know i've only done that psilocybin trip once i didn't want to waste it by testing it but hopefully i will do that at some point is test it and and see if that's actually what happens Really, really interesting. But together, they work together on the other side. When I've done Amanita, she's spoken to me about the psilocybins. And when I was on psilocybin, I met them, the psilocybin entities and the Amanita entities. They work together. So the entities of each mushroom are intimately familiar, even if physiologically they might not go together. Well, I guess we'll find out. We'll just stay tuned. I want to hear more people talk about that. 
Yes. I'm hoping that, you know, the work you're doing is emboldening people to share those experiences because that's how you get a collective body of knowledge like we've had to derive with every other entheogen. So hopefully, you know, this is kind of the start of that wave. And then this is a question that we've really touched on throughout the interview. And I've kind of asked very specific questions about, but what has this relationship that you've developed with fungi? And maybe it started with Amanita and now you have an appreciation probably for so much more of kingdom fungi. But what has that relationship given to you? What has that brought to your life? It taught me that humans are not the higher beings that I thought we were. And that I believe that now that I know what I know about fungi, I believe fungi are incredibly sentient and intelligent. And that all animals and plants have a different but equal or higher level of sentience just because we don't hear it or see it or understand it. And and based on how we treat each other and the planet, I think that we are a lower order species. And I think mm. that fungi and the others, based on how they see, how I see them behave in their environment to me, I'm now very humbled by my planet. And sometimes I feel like I, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> like I, it's a gift that I get to be among them. But it's definitely knocked me down a lot of notches and put me in what I feel like is the place where I should be, which is in reverence to the natural world. And that's probably humanity at our best. So when we're celebrating, revering, and trying to emulate the natural world as best we can, these incredibly well-dialed-in systems and organisms that seem to move in perfect harmony with each other uh, and balance with each other, yeah, I think understanding all of that and getting that glimpse of that blows up your anthropocentrism definitely so i completely agree with what you said that was really well said uh and then final question what is your greatest hope or highest aspiration for human society's continued relationship with fungi as we learn more as people like yourself get interested bring back insights you know what is the hope for society maybe 20 years down the line, 50 years down the line, as we continue to develop our relationship with mushrooms and fungi? My biggest hope is that they are a normal part of our life, that our world is structured around them being there, that the laws don't exist anymore, or that if they do, they're well-balanced laws that don't encroach on personal autonomy that it's normal that children are raised in a household where amanitas and psilocybins and other mushrooms and other plants are and animals, that farms aren't just animals, that they are food production and medicine production, that you can go to work or wherever work is for you and say, I need a little bit of a, a, a softer day today because I journeyed with the psilocybin this weekend and they're, oh, cool, man, well, I'll take this and you can you can just slack and do that or whatever and where people are, are you okay? What are you learning? Are you synthesizing it well? That there's no such thing as drug culture. That these entheogens are the domain of all humans. It's not one subculture that's maligned or suppressed, but it's something normalized throughout human society. I hope. It would be nice. Just as like a little follow-up to that, in this context of what some people are calling like the psychedelic renaissance, where we're seeing the emergence and popularization and mainstreaming of things like MDMA and psilocybin. What do you think about that, the, the mainstreaming of psychedelics and how Amanita fits into that picture? I think it's not for everybody, first of all, because not everyone has an issue with their fight or flight response systems. 
but a lot of us do, enough of us do, that it should be the normal go-to to flush out the trauma responses so that we maintain the lessons and the intelligence from our experiences, but we don't retain the trauma responses. So that if you don't need it all the time, but it is something that you do regularly, whatever regularly is for you once a year as a celebration on the equinox or something like, but it's that it's something that everyone knows is something that everyone should probably do on some kind of a schedule regularly. And I guess, do you think it should kind of try to adapt in the medical model that psilocybin is going right now, or should this kind of remain free, not legislated, available for everyone? No entheogen or plant or anything should ever be legislated by anyone anywhere for any reason. That's what I was hoping you would say. I see a lot of that with the way that our mainstreaming of psychedelics is going is just putting it in another box, still building layers of rules around it, still gatekeeping it for certain parts of the population. Uh, So yeah, I think you've elucidated beautifully why a human society, everyone should have some kind of relationship with these substances and have the knowledge of their use and appropriate use. And, you know, I I could ask a million questions, keep talking to you. So I hope we have you on again. I really encourage people to go check out your work. But thank you so much for joining us on Mushroom Hour and, yeah, just giving us your time and attention and answering all my uh, long-winded, basic, whatever questions that I threw at you. Uh, It was amazing. It was so fun. I love talking about Amanita, and you're such a great host.